Welcome to the world of fiction, where we're lying, but that's okay. One prepared host, two neurodivergent nerds, two authors dig deeper into the lies that expose truths. If you're a fan of fiction with a curious mind, tune in each week for discussions on speculative worlds, fandom, the industry, and creating. All right. Um... Book to Screen Adaptations Part 2 of We're Lying, But That's Okay. And just in case anybody is getting kind of like, well, why should we take them seriously? Because they're lying and they think it's okay. That's what <laughs> fiction is. It's it's the lies yeah. we make up in order to tell truths. Mm-hmm. If you're a Brandon Sanderson fan and you've read the Stormlight Archives, you hearken back to the cryptic in uh, Words of Radiance. So let's talk about season two. Of yeah, Time. I, I haven't I haven't actually seen the teaser. Okay, should we should we watch it right now? Uh, yeah, let's do that. And watch the teaser they did, but given the limitations of the podcast medium, you won't be able to watch it with them. So we're gonna skip ahead to where the fun resumes. Yeah, some really good stuff there. Mm-hmm. So for starters, let's put a spoiler warning out there because Ludlow has read the entire series and I am very aware of things that happen in later books because my husband has read all of the Robert Jordan books. He hasn't read the Brandon Sanderson ones yet. He he wants to reread the first ones before he does that. But That's an undertaking. Um, I know. I'm like, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> um, but because of that, there may be things we're aware of that happen um, that if you're not reading the books and just watching the show yeah. could be small spoilers. Yeah. We're not going to spoil anything huge. but Yeah. Um, I have to say, I absolutely love the actor they cast for Patton Fane. Mm-hmm. And um, the scene of the of the fate of the Maidral, um nailed to the door was yeah. Pad and Fane. Um, um, oh. And it's basically Pad and Fane showing this group of Trollocs, no, 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 you don't listen to him, you listen to me. And okay. uh, yeah, he's he is as the series goes on, he's really pretty sinister in, in mm-hmm. Robert Jordan's kind of upbeat way um yeah but he could really i mean he he's going to be dangerous and i'm really excited about that and then gosh what else did we see in here we saw aiel yeah we saw the aiel waste for sure we saw a a big wheel which um in max's uh opinion could possibly be a tart Mm. Am I saying that right? Terangrial? Something like that. Terangrial. I think that's it. Terangrial. Keep in mind, uh, before fans roast me, that I'm I'm listening to these, so I'm not seeing a lot of these words written down. And it's very hard for me with my neurology to repeat a word that I haven't seen written um, and have only just, just heard. So I might struggle with some pronunciations and things. It's not because I'm not a true fan um, and not, I'm not paying attention. It's because I'm, I'm listening to these on audiobook um, when I drop my daughter off at school and then pick her up from school and I, have to sit in carpool line forever. And dear reader, <laughs> I didn't even know that about JS. So that was, uh, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. looking at a paused um, still of it, of the wheel. And mm-hmm. it could be, I mean, it has, uh, it has like manacles attached to it or cuffs attached to it. Yeah. Which is really interesting. So, yeah. I mean, or it could just be a, a straight up punishment thing in the waste. Mm-hmm. So right. I mean, it could it, be a couple different It's things. hard to tell because we don't know how Rafe is going to interpret some of these things. Yeah. Um, it would be a different interpretation from the, the one that we saw in the first season yeah. that Moraine gives Rand, but um it is a possibility because simply because we know that when Rand is in the IEL wastes, 
he comes across more of these. Yeah. Something that I, I predict for season two is season one was mostly book one, some things from book two, and then other things pulled from future books. I think that season two is going to be much more aggressively a combination of books. Yeah. And I'm, I'm predicting books two through four will be, will have things from um, those three books yeah. in season two. Yeah. Um, obviously there's going to be the hunt for the Horn of Valier and what it looks like is Rand is not going to be part of it and neither is Matt. That parent's going to be on that journey simultaneously with Rand being in the ideal wastes, which didn't happen in book two and happens later. And then Matt having his own journeys from future books from like book three and four. And yeah. And they're making these happen at the same time in, in the show because they have to condense 14 books into one of, a handful of seasons. Yeah. And, and actually one of the the, the snippets that we get, are two people fighting with like st- staves in a courtyard? That mm-hmm. is actually that's Matt. Um, yeah, yeah. That's what Max noticed as well. Yeah, that, that it's Matt, and he thinks it's when he's being um, trained with what did he call it? See, this is one I don't actually know because I haven't read far enough ahead. Um, but it's a, a specific type of weapon that Matt gets trained with in a future book yeah so it it, it's also possible that it's part of a of a different scene so one of the things that happens with matt when he gets to the uh the white tower um well first of all he's emaciated and stuff so they feed him a whole lot like push him Mm -hmm. full of food constantly but he also drops two of the people training to be warders um they have swords he has a staff i think it's been a long time and he drops the both of them and they're like, wait, what? I don't understand. And, you know, the, the warder who is training them is saying, you know, the greatest swordsman that ever lived, he was able to defeat like 10 opponents at the same time. The only person he ever lost to was a farmer in a field with a stick. And mm. so I think that that was kind of a, that kind of led to his other weapon. Matt's other weapon. Mm. So, mm-hmm. you know, Matt is actually already kind of a badass. All, all three of, well, all of the, the main characters are in the books. But yeah. you know, just don't necessarily see it right away. I mean, they, they're t- they're all Taverans, so they all yeah. have, yeah. even if they're not all the dragon, like Rand is, they all have very important roles to play yeah. in. Yeah, and... Elaine and Nynaeve are two of the most powerful channelers that the tower has ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like Elaine is more powerful than pretty much anybody in the tower. And then Moraine describes it to, to the Amberlin at the time that Mm -hmm. um, Elaine as a, is as a candle to a bonfire or a roaring flame. That is Nynaeve. Like Nynaeve is by far the most powerful channeler the women have, have seen in, probably a thousand years probably since the um age of legends yeah. and the nynaeve's an interesting one and even though this it wasn't in the teaser my husband and i have a prediction with nynaeve's story in the second season okay. because they made the very interesting decision to still um moraine at the end of season one mm-hmm. to take away her ability to channel mm-hmm. which for those who don't know is called stilling it's what they do with the men who can channel um, to keep them from going mad. But Ishmael stills Moraine at the end of season one. And that doesn't happen in, in the books. I don't believe she's ever stilled in the books. She is. Um, if I remember correctly. Oh, she is. She... Oh, but later, later on. Yes. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So she is stilled, but not nearly as early as she is in the show. And we also know, if you and if you've read the series, you know that Nynaeve figures out how to unstill someone. Yeah, which for a couple thousand years had been thought to be impossible. Impossible since right. the Age of Legends, probably. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and Nynaeve actually figures it out on a male channeler, and they 
it, it happens. She's kind of like probing and then all of a sudden it clicks back into place. Mm. And the two characters look at each other like, what just happened? And he is mm. obviously ecstatic. Um, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that they find is that a male channeler healing a female channeler, she gets back all of her power. So if it's cross gender, cross sex, they get back all of their power. If it's somebody of the mm. same sex healing somebody who has been stilled, they don't get back nearly as much power. Mm. So Moraine, who is already who was a fairly potent channeler, mm. is not very powerful down the road. But her value comes from some other things. So, right. you know, and which they introduced in season one for sure that there's more. Yeah that Moraine is offering than just yeah. her ability to channel. Yeah. Um, but we're, we, we're predicting that they're moving these things up um, and having Nynaeve figure this out in season two and then unstill Moraine mm-hmm. at some point. Maybe. Yeah. Which would be a big moment for their relationship too. So yeah, that's one of our predictions. If not um, season two, then season three. Mm-hmm. There's... Another scene that was very brief that I want to bring up. Oh, yes. Um, oh, that's not There's an this Aiel. shot. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go. Yeah. No, the blonde guy, right? Yeah. I'm like, Is oh, that you're t- he's not Nail. That's a that's that's, children of the light. Yeah. That's what I was going to bring on, up on, because on. when I first yeah. watched, I was like, oh, a Nail. Yeah. And then I paused it on him because it was such a brief shot. And yeah. I was like, wait, no, he doesn't have red hair. So. Well, the red hair isn't necessarily a, a, a requirement, um, especially if you're out in really strong sunshine all the time. It's going to bleach your hair anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, you I, we would see guys in the Marine Corps all the time, really short hair out, outside. We were outside constantly. So they would have you know, like sandy brown hair or something or, or blondish hair, even though that wasn't necessarily a natural hair color. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought the thing over his left shoulder was like a backpack or something, and now I'm looking it at it. I'm like, like a... No, it's his. Yeah, it's his armor. It's his. Yeah. It, it's ceremonial, so it, it signifies rank for them. So it's yeah. not really there to do a whole lot of protecting. Yeah, but, it's yeah. in the details because the the initial shot, it's like, oh, it looks like an aisle in the in the aisle waist, yeah. but yeah, but it it actually looks like it's a child of yeah light. yeah oh yeah so sorry about that um what was it that you were gonna bring up no that was it oh that, that was, was it, it. Okay. Um, okay yeah yeah so yeah we can move on to another one um <laughs> i think that the the image of the two really tall stones that almost looks like a gateway might be portal stones their interpretation of portal stones it kind of looks like they could be in a setting with all of the the green and the vines climbing up them. If it's not a steading, then I would say it's in one of the southern kingdoms because um, the southern coast kingdoms are probably like very Mediterranean-ish, but like mm-hmm. the parts of the Mediterranean where they grow, grow citrus fruit and stuff. And I mean, those mm-hmm. are those are definitely palm trees. Yeah. So yeah, it could be kind of a jungle. It could be a steading would make sense. So yeah. Uh huh. It's initially it looks like it's probably just an ornate kind of gateway into somewhere, but they spend a bit of time yeah. in that shot looking at it, which yeah. makes me think, oh, yeah, these could be the portal stones it's, because yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's that which gateway. I think is a very cool <laughs> yeah. interpretation of portal stones if that is yeah. what they are. Yeah, it would make sense that they would be, if they're being made by different people, which they would have been, I, I would imagine mm-hmm. that they would that they would kind of look a little different regionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's got this castle out in the desert. Yeah. And I'm trying, um, what is that symbol? With the soldiers in the circle in the courtyard. Yeah. There's hawks on the... Um, uh, tense. So it's it's one of the northern kingdoms then. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the ones that defends against the uh, the blight. Yeah, that's what we can gather based on the 
the insignias on the tents. Yeah. Um, uh, back to the merge roll on the door. It, it seems like maybe we're going to see some of Fane's journey in the same way they added some of Moraine's in the first season. I mean, in, in the second book, you don't see a lot. There is some from his point of view, but um, not a lot. And instead, we follow Inktar and, and Rand and Matt and Perrin through these towns where everyone's just gone and disappeared, but then there's a murder all nailed to the door and they don't know what happened. And so if they do go in the direction of seeing the other side of seeing how it happens, I'm very fascinated to see what they do with that and how they interpret those events. I think that it will add to that political intrigue, but on the, the dark side yeah. rather than, you know, in the white tower. Yeah. Um, because there is a lot of politics that that's going on with the dark one and the yeah. dark friends. And it'll be really cool if they go that direction and show us some of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. So, and again, it shows, it's going to end up showing how incredibly powerful and scary Pat and Fane is. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I couldn't remember. So the hawk, I believe, uh, represents this, the, uh, the kingdom of Shinar. Okay. Um, and it is a blue and white symbol. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's so typically that Shinar. Yeah. Yeah. And Max is like, maybe that's. Oh. going to be at the very beginning before they leave yeah. Shinar to yeah. hunt the horn. Yeah. Um, I, I want to mention Rand, um, his appearance, because there's the shot where he's sitting and looking very like powerful mm-hmm. sitting in what looks like it could be a fancy bed or a fancy chair or something. And, and it looks like there's markings on his neck and chest, which if he does go to the ideal wastes, there are markings that he gets there. But I believe in the books, they're on his forearms. Yeah. And his hands. But I'm, yeah. By the time it's all said and done. Yeah. He's got brands on both of his hands and then he's got dragons mm-hmm. on both of his forearms down to the, down to the back of his hands, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does look, well, it could just be weird and just be dirt or something. But yeah, I think it's. Yeah, it could. I think it's likely. But it does look else. like there's yeah. something there. And yeah. I don't know if they're playing more into those markings and and maybe making it more dramatic for yeah. um, aesthetics on the screen. Um, but it, it looks like something. There's yeah. something there. And I'm very intrigued by that. I think it's going to be really cool to see Rand um, really accepting that he's the dragon and his power uh, so much earlier because what, where I'm reading in the books, he hasn't really accepted it yet. He's still like, I want to just get away from all the ice. I die. I'm not going to do what they want me to do. I'm not going to be who they want me to be. And then, you know, there's an epic battle and everyone knows now that he's the dragon reborn because of this epic battle in the sky that everyone could see. And, I'm very interested to see how it plays out if he's already accepted he's the dragon before people find out. And if people find out in in the second season or if they change that. There was a lot of kind of back and forth with all of the characters, especially, you know, like the main, the big five. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could be, I mean, and to be honest with you, there's stuff that he wrestles with until the very last book. And it's, mm-hmm. it, there's points when it's like, dude, get over it. Like just, <laughs> hey, Brandon Sanderson was saying as a younger person reading the books, um, you're totally on Rand's side. Like, yeah, they're so annoying. Just leave this guy alone. And, and then he said, rereading it. Cause he's read them many, many times, obviously. Um, I mean, he would, he had to, to be able to finish the series. Um, but he says rereading it as an adult, he's very much like, Rand, you just need to listen to Moraine. Like, come on. She knows better than you. Yeah. Just just listen to her. Stop all of this immature 
nonsense. Like, just accept this because you can't change it just out of pure stubbornness and willpower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought that was a really interesting thing because I think for the film, they, they understand that the audience, the age of the audience who's watching these films isn't necessarily going to have patience for a sort of immature rejection of the chosen one. Yeah. Um, and they needed him to accept that much sooner so that the audience can actually enjoy Rand as a character instead of being annoyed and frustrated by him. Well, and it's not just Rand. It's, you know, ironically, so I'm not the only person that I've met who's like this. My two favorite characters are um, Lan and Matt because they're both like, they're kind of like the opposite sides of duty. Lan mm-hmm. is like, this is what I've been brought up for. Like my entire life is this. This is what I have to do. Matt's like, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> but then they both do it, whatever it is, really, really, really well. And so... Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to be kind of interesting, but it seems like mm-hmm. they're they're definitely moving along those those plot lines a little bit faster. Um, mm-hmm. Robert Jordan's writing style, I think you you probably have seen it in the first couple of books, but it gets there's to the point where there's entire books of this. He does a bunch of build up and then quick resolution, bunch of build up, quick yeah. resolution. What happens yeah. is some of those books, like the slog are build up, build up, build up, build up, no real resolution. And then book Mm. 11, tons and tons and tons of resolution. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some stuff that makes a lot of us cry because he could do emotional so very beautifully well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And then there's some more spoilers for the last couple of books that I definitely do not want to say because I don't don't want to ruin them for you. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think that book two is definitely like that. The Great Hunt. It's a whole book with one goal, just one goal that they're pursuing. And it, it spans a very short period of time, which is also kind of characteristic of Robert Jordan. I, I think Max said there's one book that spans like a few days or something. It's the entire book, just a few days, which is fascinating to me as a writer in the more technical sense and like as a professional writer perspective rather than a reader as a reader it sounds like a nightmare (laughs) or brilliance right it could go either way but I think that the film is going to take more of a immediate payoff follow the format that you usually see in a tv series where you get some resolution with every episode and the end of a season has a big resolution and big payoff yeah. and then introduces more intrigue for the, yeah. as the cliffhanger and yeah, which in and season one, it was the, um, the sold at the end that, which I thought was, even though the wave coming at the girl was a very bizarre thing. I don't understand I thought that the scene with when the ships first come in was very well done. It was very intriguing. And if you don't know what the Soldom are, which I didn't know what they were at the time I saw that episode, it's very cool. It, just like, whoa, there's this whole other thing happening that's about to be introduced, a whole other group of people that we yeah. don't even know about yet. Yeah. And in book two, that's really, I mean, the Soldom and the Shan Chen that becomes really prominent. Um, yeah. But yeah, all that to say, I think, I think the show has to give that payoff more frequently. And that's going to require cutting out a lot of things that some people might be upset. Yeah. Having cut out. Or changing things like having Matt, Perrin, and Rand all on separate journeys, yeah. which I think they're going to do. Well, and they they had, I mean, they all had different journeys, literally and metaphorically. And so they're just, mm-hmm. they're, they're pushing up the timeline, mostly because yeah. a lot of it really isn't that interesting. I'm going to be honest, mm-hmm. like some of it's just like, okay, this is set up for later. 
mm-hmm. you know, and they've got and a it's, whole it's, lot of material to get through to get to the fun stuff. Right. And it, it works in the, in the book, at least it did in book two, because you never feel like it's taking forever to reach their goal because there's so many things happening yeah. that just uh, like Celine for one, just this, okay, there's this new character and I am highly suspicious of her. And that keeps you occupied for a while while this task that they're on is being drawn out. But that doesn't work the same uh, on the screen. No. That doesn't tend to... I mean, people get frustrated when episodes in a series are drawing out something that they feel they've been promised from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. At some point... I'm going to have to sound like I know what I'm doing, but we'll worry about that when we've got like 12 listeners. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The the pacing on movies and television versus books, short stories, et cetera. You're right. It's so very different. It has to be, Mm -hmm. you know, short stories with, with movie shorts might be the closest thing to parody, but yeah, there's no way you can do it any other way. I think that, based on what I'm predicting and what I've seen in the teaser, there's going to be a lot more fuel for the haters. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Some of them will have stopped watching. Like my brother-in-law didn't get past the first few episodes of season one, which is, which is fine. And I think what you should do, if it's really bothering you that much, just stop watching and go back to the books. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that in like a, a rude way, like just go back to your books. But in the, in the sense of that's what you love. And, and if you don't love how it is translated to screen, you don't have to love it. Yeah. Don't torture yourself and, and just go back to those books. Um, Agreed. But, but for those who are still watching, even while they're angry, I think there's going to be, more controversy in season two than there even was in season one. I think it'll be very controversial. Yeah. People are definitely going to be like, what the heck? Why could you do, how, how could you possibly do this? Oh, see, it's all awful. And they're going to miss the, the art of storytelling in this format and just how very, Mm -hmm. again, how very different it has to be. Yeah. And it, sometimes you have to change that perspective of this is an adaptation of this book that I love and look at it as this is another story within this world that is inspired by a story I love. Something Brandon said is it can help to look at it as not even the same cycle as the books were, as a a different cycle on the Wheel of Time. And this is Rafe's you know, interpretation of what one of those cycles might look like. And that can help. They also did that with the uh, the Dark Tower. You know, the, the movie that came mm-hmm. out in 2017 is literally a different cycle through that thing. I'm going right. to ruin part of it. And I'm sure there's plenty it, of fan fiction that's done that too. Yeah. It just, it lends itself to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and in the Dark Tower, it's very much like the whole thing is it goes over it happens again and again and again and until finally mm-hmm. something changes and the thing that changes is hinted at but like only on one like one or two of the the, the promo posters I don't even know that they they had a scene that actually showed it in the movie which was a real shame because it mm. it was very much this is a different cycle through this story um, mm. and so yeah the wheel of time definitely lends itself to that but yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I was very much like, oh, it has to be exactly the same or it's not a, a real thing. And it was, mm-hmm. did I say, did I say this? It was a Stephen King quote that changed my mind on that. Yeah. You mentioned that. Might as well mention it again for our listeners, but okay. um, you did mention it in part one. Yeah. So uh, Stephen King has a quote a long, for, that I read many, many, many years ago that I was actually looking for, couldn't find, um, that basically says that he loves to see the interpretations of, of the work because he's like, look, nothing ever changes a single word I've ever written. It's just a different way to view the same material or the same story that I was trying to tell. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
you can tell the same story thousands and tens of thousands and millions of different ways. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is just more of a literal, literal version of that. It's literally the mm -hmm. same story done in a different way for a different format. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that authors are not screenwriters yeah. and they're different crafts. Yeah. They are. And you can't, uh, sometimes if you get an author who is good at both, then you can get an author who is one of the main writers for yeah. the screenplay and, and you'll get a really interesting adaptation that way because it's still coming from the yeah. original artist um, but usually, I mean, you might see some direct quotes pulled and from dialogue, but the dialogue's really the only thing that's transferable. Yeah. In in such a direct way. Well, you can't plan the a film shot the same way that it's described in a book. And and I think one of the masters of you know being able to write the book and then write the screenplay and be involved is Neil Gaiman. Like he's yeah. the showrunner for Good Omens. And I think mm -hmm. Sandman too. And I, I'm pretty sure he yeah. he at least wrote Sandman. I don't know if he was the showrunner or not. I'd have to look that up. But he at least wrote it. Yeah. Um, and it is different. There are differences in both of those. Good Omens does use a lot of the same dialogue directly, and and the narration that kind of breaks the fourth wall sometimes is pulled directly from the book, but. The way it's written lends to that a little better. Yeah. Um, but from what I understand, I haven't read all the Sandman comics, but there's a lot of changes between the comics and the yeah and the show. Um, apparently, he did. He helped develop it, but I don't think he's the showrunner for this one. Mm -hmm. um, he might be, though. I'm gonna look it up because we live in the future, and at least then I'll feel like I'm yeah. contributing something more. Yeah. <laughs> While you're looking that up, um, Brandon Sanderson, and uh, I mentioned in part one that I, in preparation for this, watched the two episodes that Brandon has done on mm -hmm. the Wheel of Time on his podcast, which is called um, Intentionally Blank. It was episodes 27 and episode 34 that I watched. Um, one of them was a reaction to the pre COVID episodes. And the other one was more of a reaction of post COVID episodes. Mm. Um, and he mentions in one of those episodes, I think it was episode 34 that he doesn't want his fans to come for him when the Mistborn <laughs> series eventually comes out because it is being adapted. Yeah. And, and he's, he's one of the writers. He might be the primary writer for that. And, and he's helping adapt that into a screenplay. And um, he said, there's already changes. Like I can tell you right now, there's already changes and, and it's the, it's stuff that has to change. Yeah. It's, it, it's just how it is. And please don't come into it expecting a perfect, yeah. you know, shot by shot adaptation yeah. of this because it's, it's not going to be. It's so difficult. And, it's so, so difficult. Um, yeah. yeah, so he is not, so Neil Gaiman is not the showrunner for The Sandman. It's um, mm -hmm. uh, Alan Heinberg, and he helped, so he did help with the development, and then he, he mm -hmm. actually wrote or co-wrote the first episode. Um, oh, but, just the first? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, he is really involved with the productions quite a bit, um, or as much mm -hmm. as he can be depending on the contract. So he was not very involved with American Gods at all. Um, whereas with Good Omens, he was the showrunner. And his his basic thing was, if Terry wouldn't have liked it, I'm not doing it. You know, so yeah. they would say, hey, we want to make this change. And he would be like, How, what would Terry think of this? No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, That's an interesting comparison because it's another example of an author finishing what another author started in the same way Brandon finished the wheel of time. And, you know, I, most of the hardcore, um, wheel of time fans love Brandon 
and are very grateful (laughs) for him finishing out the series. Um, But, but, you know, I've met a couple, uh, my brother-in-law included, and he'll he'll never listen to this, so I don't talk about that. But um, <laughs> and he is just like Brandon is not as good of a writer, and I didn't like his versions of the story and and what he did with it, and I didn't like his writing, and I prefer Robert Jordan so much more, and a very like purist kind of attitude towards it, where I... an automatic rejection of Brandon, and so for him, he's not an a. a reliable authority for the show. Um, whereas for most fans, Brandon working on helping with wheel of time and working on the show is a big stamp of approval from an authority figure. And Harriet has a producer credit. She's in her eighties. She's less accessible. So, um, Brandon actually got permission from her to be to two consults before he accepted that it's consult consulting position. So there's a couple of things with this one. Um, I'm one of the people who thinks that it would have been a very different story had Robert Jordan been able to finish it. Um, I Mm. might have liked it more. I might not have, I don't know, but I think it would have definitely been different because the storytelling style is so very different. Um, I think Brandon did a great job and you know, it was Honestly, it was pretty early in Brandon's career. And so yeah. people who get... He wasn't a big deal yet. Yeah. He was he was getting there. And I think I think mm-hmm. the deal, the contract helped him. Um, I mm-hmm. think Harriet has an editing credit on the first of the Way of Kings books. Or the, the Way of Kings, which is the first of the Stormlight archives, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I sometimes think that was probably part of the deal, is he got, he got some help mm-hmm. with the editing on that one. And... You know, Harriet's an amazing editor. She did, um, she's done all kinds of stuff way back when she Mm. did the first few Black Company books by Glenn Cook. She edited Ender's Game. She edited a bunch of just classic, seminal, important fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I want to say is that um, in Good Omens, it was was very much Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett working together to, to write them. But mm-hmm. they would write different sections. And yeah. Neil Gaiman said he would be... It was more of a collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Neil Gaiman said he would be working at night and he'd be sleeping during the day and he'd get this... He would get a, uh, a message on his answering machine because that's how long ago this was. And, and it, would be, <laughs> it would be Terry saying, Get up, you bastard. I wrote some good stuff. And <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> But one of the other things I, I wanted to bring up about this is Stephen King with his adaptation contracts. So mm-hmm. uh, Fables, Fairy Tale, whatever it is that he just published. Um, I don't know. I I don't read a lot of S- Stephen King. I'm, I'm not a horror fan. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's a brilliant writer, obviously, yeah. but... Um, it's it's just a taste thing. It's nothing he's, against him and his work. Yeah, he's written a lot of stuff but, that isn't really horror. Um, Eyes of the Dragon. You'll have to give me a list because yeah. 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 For anybody out there I've who's never, thinking, well, I don't. I'm I'm with JS. I don't really like Stephen King's horror stuff. Eyes of the Dragon is not a horror. It's very visceral, um, and it's kind of a Stephen King fairy tale. Well, he just published Fairy Tale. Um, a dark fantasy novel um, that follows Charlie Reed, a 17-year-old who inherits a keys to a kingdom, to a hidden otherworldly realm, and finds himself leading the battle between the forces of good and evil. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that quick blurb. Um, so it's that kind of thing. So a day or two after the publication date, the release date, it was already optioned. Um, and Jeez. Yeah. And his his typical option contract is one dollar up front, and he gets to pick or has um, kind of refusal rights on the producer, writer, mm-hmm. and director. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the exact thing. 
Uh, there's an article on Deadline from 2016, and it, the title is Stephen King on what Hollywood owes authors when their books become Q films, Q&A. So this one's actually a pretty interesting thing, but um, it's not in here. Okay, well, I'm not entirely sure where I read that, so mm -hmm. um, let me... If you, if you want to have a reference, you can look for it and we can put it in the yep. um, I, session notes. I actually found notes. it. It's in that article. Oh, okay. um, so yeah, we'll add it into the session notes anyway. We'll do a quick link to it. Mm -hmm. uh, King says, I want a dollar and I want approvals over the screenwriter, the director, and the principal cast. My apologies, not the producer. Uh, we try to make mm. these people understand the people that are doing the deal that I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, he goes on to say he's not a hard guy to get along with, and all this time he's been doing it, he's I've never put a red light to anybody about anything that they wanted to do. Um, if they want to make changes, if they want to be a little bit out on the edge, I'm all for it. I like it. So again, it just goes and reinforces that earlier quote that I found like 30 years ago that got the stick out of my ass about this, saying mm -hmm. that he likes to see the different interpretations of his work. I, I mean, I know um, some people have speculated that Robert Jordan wouldn't like the, the series. But from the perspective of an author, if I think about after I've passed on and my work being adapted to film and becoming a new piece of art that brings in an audience that would not know yeah. my work, yeah. I, I think that is such a great honor. Yeah. And I, I like to think that Robert Jordan would see it that way as an, an honor. Yeah. Um, and, and a joy to see how many more people are, are experiencing this world that he's created. Yeah. If I remember correctly, there's a quote from somebody saying that, especially when it came to the casting, that Robert Jordan would be very disappointed with the people who were being nasty about the casting. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how much he would like all of the changes, but I, I think he would be completely fine with who they've got cast as as the principal characters yeah. and he he wouldn't yeah. be able he would probably not care less about the the not principal characters the side characters and tertiary mm -hmm. and yeah quatrisary I don't, I don't know what it is for the four times removed but yeah it would mm -hmm. it would definitely I, I think he would be like yeah whatever um yeah. and i think in a lot of ways tolkien would be as well but I think a lot of cases what we're seeing is, well, he was really picky about certain things. He was like, I, I don't care less about some of these things, but he was really particular about a handful of things. But then again, that was back when this stuff wasn't done all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, it was. It was just Shakespeare being written yeah. over and over and over again or being done in movies over mm -hmm. and over and over again. One thing I've heard that he was particular on was pronunciation. Yes. But some of those pronunciations have been lost over time. Yeah. Um, Brandon said that he, uh, he was asking about the pronunciation of more gays. And he was speaking with two of uh, Robert's assistants. And one of them said, oh, it's pronounced this way. And the other one said, no, he pronounced it like this. And, and neither of them could agree on how yeah. he had pr originally yeah. pronounced it. And it, that's just sort of like a a metaphor for the entire series yeah. that we can't, there was only so much material that Brandon had. Yeah. Um, and so I, I agree. It would have been a very different ending simply if just for the fact that Brandon couldn't get in his head yeah. after he was gone yeah. to know exactly what he was going to do and not even Harriet knew everything. Yeah. I'm sure that she was able to guide him yeah. very well. Yeah. But those and that in the notes, like, you know, literally they're like, okay, we know this scene. We know this scene. We know this scene. We know that this stuff has to happen. How do we mm -hmm. tie it all together? And he worked. Yeah, stitch it together somehow. Yeah, yeah. He worked really diligently. Brandon worked really, really hard with, mm -hmm. um, with the entire editorial staff, you know, Harriet yep. and, um, and, and the two assistants. I don't know that they really want their names out there, but. Um, who are both fantastic people. I, 
I know one of them much better than the other and absolutely adore her. I think she's fantastic. Mm -hmm. If she listens to this later, um, it, it's only because I felt obligated to say that <laughs> because for, for the, for the first time or the, or the very new listener to this, Ludlow is a giant pain in the ass when it comes to stuff like this. So I used to get into a lot of trouble in boot camp about being kind of a really snarky, funny, well, I think I'm funny anyway. You have your moments. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple <laughs> here and there. Um, yeah, I, I think when it comes to adaptations in general, as long as something isn't absolutely horrific, people are going to be like, oh, that's awesome. And it's really just uh, interpretation um, about what is considered horrific and not. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a, I think people need to appreciate the, the art being good in, it, in and of itself. And obviously there was some issues with the final two episodes of, of the yeah. first season that... I think are legitimate concerns, but we also have to offer some grace given the complicated circumstances the team found themselves in. Yeah. And COVID hit everybody. I mean, everybody like it, it completely changed the way they filmed the Witcher, Mm -hmm. uh, which was interesting. It changed everything. Well, supernatural for film. The final season of supernatural was supposed to be much longer and involved a lot more, throwback characters but you know mm-hmm. really all they could bring in was the guy who played or jim beaver the guy who played um one of their mentors who had died you know many years before but like when they get to heaven there's mm. supposed to be a lot of stuff there and like they were going to bring in a ton of the actors and they couldn't they just couldn't do it mm-hmm. because of covid restrictions yeah so i you know i i'm patient with yeah. those final two episodes for sure yeah um but I, I think that people need to remember what a true letdown feels like. Yeah. Like the Aragorn, or not Aragorn, sorry, Aragon yeah. adaptation. Yeah. Where the only good thing Christopher Paulini could say about it was hopefully it gets people, more people reading the books yeah. because it, of the, it, like marketing, yeah. basically. It, like a, an elaborate marketing scheme. And, and to be realistic, film. let's be honest, um, there are people out there who think that the Wheel of Time or the Rings of Power or Sandman or Good Omens are all every bit as bad as the Aragon adaptation. But yeah, those people are wrong and true. I'm fine with them being wrong. No, I, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to gatekeep. I'm not going to gatekeep for them. If they don't like it, they don't like it. They just don't have to be douchebags exactly. about it. Yeah, you don't have to like a piece of art, but yeah. that also doesn't mean you need to shit on it. Yeah, yeah, because there are going to be people out there who do like it, and I'm not gonna, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna yuck their yum. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, uh, something like Aragon, um, the the numbers didn't lie with that one. It it really flopped. Yeah. Um, so I, I can understand. Christopher Pauly not having much good to say about it. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it's something that I definitely want to explore in another episode, how Christopher Paulini just ignited this campaign on Twitter. Uh, I think a year ago or a couple years ago for a remake for Disney to do a remake after they acquired you're gonna those rights you're going to make me watch the the movie for this. I aren't you? I'm going to have to now. <laughs> I, I need I a, mean, we can't, we have to wait to do that one until we have more information about no, the, the live action no, that they're going to do because they do did one, just officially. We can announced. do one. We can, we can do another one about adaptations and what authors think about them, but spread, you know, go, go much wider than this, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if we want to go really specific. So, Listeners who are like, why are they talking about this? J.S. and Ludlow are very different people when it comes to how we think about things. J.S. is very Mm -hmm. organized and very methodical, whereas I, as Ludlow, am not at all. And uh, which is why we have one prepared host and I get the topic 30 minutes before we start. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I opened it exactly 30 minutes before we started. I did 25 minutes of research, completely missed one of the biggest things to do then use the bathroom and sat down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it it just, it just plays on our strengths. I, I need a plan. I need notes or else 
I uh, will forget everything that I've ever learned about anything <laughs> and I will not be able to speak. Yeah. It, it just has to do with some of my health conditions and I, I have to have that. And, but it's also my strength. I'm good at the research. I'm good yeah. at the planning and the organization. Um, and you're very good at an, the more improvised, um, like what's the word I'm looking for? The brainstorming discussion kind of stuff is where I, I love to be. Yes, yes. The um, the really getting deep into these thought exercises and and bouncing off of another yeah. person. And yeah. um, you're very good at, at, I mean, to dumb it down, I guess, you're very good at conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I try. When it's, about, when it's about like things like this, which I think is a unique skill for sure. Um, and, and I did watch all of that show, uh, only murders in the building and both seasons. Yeah. Both seasons. Um, oh, then you're ahead of me I, now. <laughs> I was giggling so much. Like, it's oh, well, so we, good. We need to deal with this. Well, we can worry about that when we've got 12 listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so reader or listeners later you're probably going to hear us splash in some uh some quotes from the show here and there because i think we both mm -hmm. love it yeah and it was great timing that i happened to start watching it as we're starting this podcast and then told you about it yeah, and yeah it's one of those things that yeah it might have been out for a while and people are like come on get with the program but for us it, it was new and um it will be probably become significant to us in years to come because of and it's watching it at the same time that we started this. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me. This is an adaptation of classic Steve Martin, Martin short comedy, like what you would see mm -hmm. in the three musketeers and things like that, except the character that plays it straight all the time is played by Selena Gomez who crushed mm -hmm. it. And yeah, you know, and that person, that character is also often kind of mean and, Mm -hmm. you know, picks on the other two characters. And in this case, they went with a neurotic one and a flamboyant one, which is also fairly mm -hmm. standard for this, this trio of comedy um, yeah. or this, this kind of classic setup. And it's, and, and they basically adapted it to the modern world. It's about a podcast and they talk mm -hmm. about the internet and they talk about all of these things that you can really tell is just so different from what they grew up on as comedy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we may have to, when you finished with the, uh, the second season, we may have to talk about that too. Yeah. That would be a fun yeah. topic for, for an episode. All right. Well, I'm winding down. Yeah. Let's, um, thank you for listening. Yes. And let's for all three of stop you, stop this recording for all, all three, three of you who are out there listening to us. <laughs> we appreciate you. <laughs> It, really though we do i mean even just one person um when you're in, new in your career of content creating um especially as authors even just knowing one person has read your work or yeah. or listened or, or consumed whatever content you're creating is is yeah. such a joy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yes thank you yeah. very much for listening and, and we'll see you next time all right sounds good Take care, everybody. This has been We're Lying, But That's Okay. Big thanks to our listeners for your support. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review. Thank you to our one-man production and tech support team, Max Garrity, for making this podcast possible.